Hello, it's Frederick Bell, CEO of Elemental Altus Royalties. Frederick, how are you, sir? Very good. Thanks, Matt. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. I've been trying to get you on for a while. You've been a busy boy. In fact, um, you've talked. In fact, you've put out an announcement. That probably explains why you've been a busy boy. Um, record attributable production and sales for 2022. Tell us more. Yes, 2022 uh, was the fifth consecutive year we've had record revenue and record gold equivalent ounces, and um, that is incorporating uh, the period as well, from 16th of August, when we completed the merger with Alta Strategies. And so we had the benefit of of those uh, residual months in the year. And 2023, uh, we've put out guidance, uh, 65% plus increase in, in guidance based on full year of the royalties that, that Alta Strategies had and also some growth in the portfolio. Right, and uh, also uh, we talk about a 65% increase um, in guidance for 2023. These are the moments that royalty companies do business. And I want to talk about, I want to sort of understand, you know, what you're doing and how you're taking advantage of the situation. Because clearly you've got uh, explorers looking for alternative financing in, in, in the light of um, funds and um, money um, drying up for them. Uh, and two, high gold environment, $2,000 gold, not, not, not too bad. So let, let's, let's start with some of the deals that you've been doing since we last spoke. Um, you know, is it better? Is it a better environment? Am I right? We think it is. Uh, we've been busier in the last few months uh, in terms of deals actually already announced and closed, um, I think as well as ones in the pipeline, than we have been probably in the last two years. And, and that is partly a function of the markets. And I think the fact that we are seeing more attractive opportunities now than we've seen when 2020 probably goes down as, as a high point in, in gold equities over the last three years. And so I think with equity prices coming off and capital becoming more expensive, things like royalties and streams have started to be able to play a, a better role um, and particularly for us. Right. So, but isn't it, isn't it a case that, you know, I think good companies can get funded. Um, so if they're looking for alternative financing, maybe there's something wrong, or is it a case they're making a conscious decision and saying, look, the, the regular dilutory equity just is not right. We're not getting the value that we want. It's expensive money. We think there's a better way and royalties matches that, answers that brief. It's, it's really, I, I always think the more options you have in, in the financing cupboard, the better. And if you have equity as an option and you have royalty and streamings, JVs, you have bank debt. Yeah, you can play with those to suit the project, to suit the to suit the company. And sometimes it's as simple as financing a project on an asset basis. And if you've got three projects, you, know, you don't need to dilute at the parent company level if you can do a royalty or stream based on that asset. Um, and so it's it it really does um, it really does vary. But I think in this current market, um, there are there are a lot of projects out there, as well as existing royalties that, that historically have been a, a sort of real source of transactions for us, um, where we can give value to the owners that they they wouldn't otherwise get. You, you've also got to give value to your shareholders. And so give me, give me a sense of, you know, what it is that you're looking for in terms of the companies that you will, you, you know, work with, because um, you've got to you've got to get that that portfolio approach right. You know, I think you know some of the, some of the players in the market. The name of the game seems to be just add as many royalties as possible, irrespective of when 
that resource will ever come out of the ground and um, you know when that revenue will be generated. I mean, how are you getting the balance of your portfolio sort of in, in kilter with your um, strategy? Well, if you looked at us a year ago, we probably only had 12 assets. And following the merger without us, we've now got approximately 90. But the, the core value is, is probably in the top 15. And the majority of those are producing assets. And so if you look at us today, roughly 10 producing royalties, um, and that generates the revenue. And beyond that, we've got uh, another half a dozen or dozen material meaningful assets. And then we've got a lot that give us real exploration optionality um, across North America, Australia, um, and, and really uh, parts of Africa as well. So I think for us, the way we have tried to approach it historically and, and where what has got us to this point has been from the beginning, a real militant, I think, focus on producing de-risked assets. Get us to cash flow, get us to diversify de-risked cash flow. And then at a point where we have 10 producing assets, we're probably more diversified than most mid-tier multi-billion dollar mining companies. Um, when we can graduate to a lower cost of capital um, with some of the big banks, that is a point where we have genuine free cash flow. We are in, in I think, our view, materially de-risked diversified revenue we can start to deploy some of that revenue um, as well as into continuing producing assets. But we can also start to build out the pipeline. And you should always be able to buy assets in the pipeline at a better price than you would if they were going into production tomorrow. Right, and I do want to talk about the kind of credit facility that you guys did back in December, because um, I think it's an important um, step up for you for you guys. But just, if I, if I may, just so stick with the portfolio at the moment. So what what is the forecast revenue for 2023? So I, I think we've given guidance US dollars of about 16 million to 18 million US in, in revenue. Um, and in, in gold equivalent ounces, that's about uh, 9,000 to um, 10,200 gold equivalent ounces. Okay. And um, obviously, gold prices is, is working in your favor, um, certainly the last, last couple of months. And, you know, one hopes that that, that continues because you are impervious to inflation uh, and what's going on in the economy. You just need the companies to be able to keep getting, getting it out of the ground. So, um, how many assets does that actually come from at the moment? Or how, how many assets will be producing by the end of this year to contribute towards that 16 to 18 number? Um, so, so we have, I think, uh, in that we had, we had 10, it was based on 10 producing assets. Right. Um, and, and there's, there's one or two, uh, probably smaller ones that, um, may either come on or come off during the year, um, where it's partial coverage or not, but the three biggest royalties we have on Carlo Winder, Casarones and, and Wang Yong, um, in terms of revenue. Uh, those those give us the majority of the company's revenue, um, and um, and and I think those are relatively straightforward to to model and predict, and then the balance is made up by um, by the rest of the portfolio. And um, we have some good ones in the development pipeline. Um, I think we we hopefully will get some positive news on a couple of them as this year progresses. And um, beyond that, we have an increasingly large development pipeline, which again eight months ago we we never had. Right and, and okay, okay, you've also been like I saw that you've been you've to, you topped up a little bit on the Castrones project, giving you like point four four three percent of that now. It's quite quite a big um, copper project, um, so it, it's quite important to you. But with regards to the kind of future revenue generation, there, I mean, what can you tell us in terms of the um, where those companies at in terms of their resource and, and reserves on the the, the portions that you've got royalties on? What, what, what do you know? So uh, on those big producing royalties, 
Uh, Casarones uh, just recently led the mining became uh, or has announced they will become the majority owner of that asset uh, in a transaction worth up to approximately a billion dollars. Um, and they are working on putting out a uh, updated 43101, uh, which they're required to do. So that will be uh, probably the point where we can give better guidance on the numbers there. But what was really interesting was in their announcement of that transaction, the emphasis they put on the expiration potential. And that's something that previously having been privately owned by Jack Snippon, um, the, the Japanese conglomerate, there was really no public information or color on. So now that it's in the hands of a publicly listed company, a very good uh, track record, uh, particularly in that region, Copper and Chile, I think we're going to be able to um, you know, publicly give or provide a lot more information to the market, not just in terms of what's there, but in terms of the, the potential growth going forward. And this is a, a big, big copper porphyry um, in, in a prolific region, um, Chile. Have you got um, other um, royalties on um, private operator companies in your portfolio, or is that it? Was that it? Um, we we also have a royalty on Bonacro, which is in Cote d'Ivoire operating mine, and that is operated by Allied Gold. And they just very recently, actually, um, this month in May, announced uh, that the Yamana former management team um, were going to join them and take it to a public company. Um, so that's one where it is a private company with a number of producing mines transitioning into a public company. Uh, I think their timeline was. Um, going into sort of Q3 this year. Right. Okay. And then, so the, I think there's a question I was trying to get at was with regards to the kind of growth, really directed towards the kind of growth profile here. I know you've given guidance for the, for this year, um, but um, how can we sort of look to your development, um, the development projects within your within the royalties that you have in terms of how they're, how much money they're allocating, how many meters they're drilling or, you know, you know what what current reserve resources are and what they're likely to be within the next two years. I mean, have you got line of sight to that, or can you point us to where we could get that information? So one of the tasks we, we we've started and well underway on is an asset handbook. And when we had uh, previously twelve assets, and I think um, eight of them were in production, it was relatively straightforward. Now we've got eighty order of magnitude plus. Um, there's a lot more assets and there are some that uh, you know, probably have little visibility or people aren't so aware of. So I think if we can do an annual asset handbook that has an up-to-date at that point uh, summary on all the assets, it will not only help um, at a point in time giving uh, an up-to-date summary of the asset in the company, but it'll also be a great reference tool to be able to, to look back at the, at the royalties we had. And I think in the future, see where some of that latent value lies um because one of the you'll appreciate this one of the challenges with earlier stage royalties and doesn't have to be a pre-resource sometimes it's, it's a sort of pfs project is you have limited uh visibility on when that will come into production and um so i think um over time well one of the things we've, we've put in our presentation as well is um on some of the producing assets what we bought the royalty for um, what it has repaid us in terms of revenue today and what the current valuation is. And the really nice thing about some of those producing assets is every quarter we can update it. And um, so far, they they sort of look like a better and better deal with each quarter. 
because typically on a lot of those, the operator is increasing the mine life as they go as well. Yeah, for, for sure. And that, that gives us a line of sight to your, your cash flow and, and, your, and more importantly, your cash growth profile. Um, but should we, should we go, let's, go to, let's go to that credit, credit facility. We've, we've talked about it numerous occasions in the past, when, you know, from early days to now. Is that you wanted to get to this moment. It's, it's an important step change in people's perception of you in the marketplace and your ability to access cheaper capital to do the things that you want. So obviously, great news that you've done it. But what, what, what was the cost of that? Were you going for more? Is there kind of, um, you know, how quickly do you feel that you need to allocate that before you can get out to market and, and get an additional additional facilities? Um, so in terms of in terms of the hits on that credit facility, post merger, combining the Alphas debt and the elemental debt, we had a bit over, um, I think it was approximately $54 million combined debt. And so what we did is we, um, our major shareholder, converted their debt into equity um, alongside a small approximately $5 million fundraise. And we came out of it with a reduced uh, amount drawn on the credit facility, so $30 million, um, with the ability to take it um, up to $50 million. And we came out with more cash than we had. And crucially, a much reduced cost of capital. And, and so uh, taking it from where we were with the Sprock facility, which yeah, really helped us to grow in the early days and do deals and transactions that we wouldn't otherwise probably been able to do. Um, it enabled us to grow the company to the stage where we could graduate to the senior banks, in this case, National Bank and CIBC. And I think if you look at us today, I, I don't think in the mining industry, you'll find another sub-billion dollar company that I'm aware of that has revenue from, say, 10 assets, that has credit facilities from some of the major banks, that has the cost of capital we have. And that gives us, I think, in, in a market which is more conducive to all season streams, it gives us a competitive advantage. Right. But, and, but in terms of either your internal strategy as to how you deploy capital, you've told us what you're after, but have you, have you got a sense of um, how quickly you need to... I know you've got to be careful and you know, get, you know, make sure you're not spending your money unwisely, but at the same time, you kind of want to build that portfolio out, um, get that kind of growth profile, and presumably you're now in a better position to have those sorts of conversations than you were, say, two years ago. Um, well, I, I guess, can you just tell us a little bit about how you're looking at your balance sheet now in terms of cash, credit, uh, facilities, and the ability to actually go out and do um, acquisitions, accretive acquisitions, versus sitting back and you know, you know, relying on the organic component to grow and do the heavy lifting for you? So we've, we've, um, we've done, uh, done a bit of both. Um, so far, we've spun out a portfolio in Morocco of licenses, and through that transaction, uh, where we'd spent order of magnitude, call it half a million dollars, um, we generated 15 royalties on 750 square kilometers of ground, um, prospective for, among other things, copper in Morocco. And we generated about um, an equity holding that's as worth order of magnitude $2 million plus. Um, we then, alongside that organic royalty generation, we also acquired uh, a number of royalties from in North America, um, with the with the really key ones being Orteco's Pickle Crow in Canada, which is a 2.8 million ounce high grade resource former mine, and also a royalty on Hopebrook in Newfoundland, which again is a former it's a former operating mine in Canada. And I think for us, um, doing that transaction, and since then we've we've bought a further piece as you mentioned earlier on the Casarones royalty, and we actually also bought another. Um, further third-party royalty on uh, Pickle Crow as well. 
And so if you look at it so far this year, um, we have been um, pretty busy both in terms of new acquisitions and also creating organic ones from the portfolio. And I'd anticipate this year we're going to continue that trend in terms of new acquisitions and also generating new royalties from the portfolio where at the moment we probably get very little value for assets that, that really do have um, significant value for us. Right. And and you mentioned earlier M&A in this space. Last, you know, the last couple of years we've been quite active, a lot of, a lot of new entrants um, in the in the space, um, yourself being one of them, um, but not not a lot of kind of growth. You, you've done, well, I guess, exceptionally well compared compared to compared to some. This economic environment, it's great for getting royalties, being able to you know provide alternative financing to some of these companies struggling to get conventional financing. It's all it's all very good. Is it a good environment for M and A? A roll up of of royalty companies, or is that for the kind of quieter moments? I'm trying, trying to sort of see if there are any kind of big moments that coming down the line. With, with, yeah, look, I, I don't think that's um. Yeah, if you look back for the last eighteen months, there haven't been many quiet moments. <laughs> In retrospect, um, we had an unsolicited bid. We went through a strategic process. We reviewed options. We subsequently, after shareholders declined that, did a cross-border merger with a UK-listed company um, involved to take over panel in the UK. Um, we closed out in August of last year. Um, since then, uh, we've probably created 15 new royalties and we've acquired approximately 21. And at the same time, we've refinanced our credit facility. We just announced um, audited accounts for the year, which was a fairly complex transaction integrating it all. Um, so we, we've been really busy on what has been announced, but also um, what is going on in, on the background um, on some of the processes which I alluded to in terms of realizing latent value in the portfolio um and and those are some of the assets that i think uh, in this in this year we'll be able to show real value for that probably don't get that value in the market at the moment and if we can do that alongside new acquisitions that will put us in the best possible position for further potential m a right but you understand what the point i'm getting at is that i thought there's some quite cute moves last year you know the the unsolicited bid um by another group to try and acquire you, um, it does wonders for the balance sheet and gets gets attention and so forth. You you have been through some sort of complex set of administrative processes yourself, but do you see anything more like that coming down the line, or is it really just about focusing on the the portfolios? Um, and I guess M and A takes care of itself if the opportunities arise. I I think that's I think that's probably a very accurate assessment. Put yourself in the best possible position. Um, and the world can change quickly. I mean, I, I hate to use the COVID word because I think everyone is incredibly bored by it now. But if you look back, it, it was something that, that really changed um, both people's lives, but also the, the market um, almost overnight. And I think um, from where we are today, our view has been put ourselves and the company in the best possible position. And then that will, um, I think, if there are sensible M&A transactions that can occur, we'll be in the best possible place to do it. So we're certainly not reliant on it, but it's also something that when we merged with Altus, uh, you know, part of the rationale was scale, increased scale and critical mass and being able to, for example, uh, close a credit facility um, at a much reduced cost of capital with some of the majors, diversify the balance sheet further, diversify the portfolio of royalties further, and build a big pipeline. I think there are some 
portfolios privately, some groups and some companies, um, all of those who have the potential to, to be a sensible, um, a sensible transaction for us in at the right time and, and place. Okay, well, help me out with something here. Jurisdictional risk. I mean, obviously, you you know, big, big, big chunk um, of your portfolio is uh, Australia, Canada, obviously, you know, Chile as well. Um, how do you view jurisdictional risk now? Because we've seen messages coming out of Chile on the lithium front, announcements about, you know, privatization was a, was a headline. I'm not necessarily, I think I think we now understand that's probably not, wasn't necessarily accurate representation of what the government said. Mexican government talking about, again, similar headlines coming out of Mexico. How do you view jurisdictional risk now in terms of what, what you do? Because I think it would help, you know, retail investors looking at other companies, specific investments companies, to perhaps assess how they should view jurisdictional risk these days? Well, so our portfolio as a background is about 70% OECD countries. Um, the biggest single country is Australia and then Chile and then Canada um, by now. I think that in terms of jurisdictions, the way we have always looked at it is I think you can you can sometimes get the less explored, less mature opportunities in emerging countries, but with it comes potential greater political sovereign country risk. And if we can have a good blend um, where we have um, opportunities where we don't have to manage um, some of the issues, and um, you know, as, a, as just a royalty holder, um, but we can have them over really high quality new discoveries and new assets in emerging jurisdictions. And if we can tie that to established operations in um, in other countries, um, in in more established countries, I, I, we've always thought that's a very healthy uh, blend. Okay, Frederick, thank you very much for uh, coming on. It was nice to get a quick, like a quick update from you. Um, and uh, you know, talk talk about what the, the year ahead looks like for you. I mean, how, how are you how are you viewing the markets at the moment more more broadly, not just on jurisdictional risk, but how are you seeing this sort of economic cycle play out? Is it is a good time for gold companies? Is it a good time for, to be in, in the metals business? Well, look, I I, I think um, we did our um, uh, we did our guidance um, for this year in terms of revenue. I, I think we used an eighteen hundred dollar gold price. Um, and so when your portfolio has a large basis in producing assets every day, every week, every month, gold price is higher than that is, is positive in terms of revenue. Um, but the way we've also you know, built this company, it's always been for, um, really getting that, you know, medium to long-term value. And the way you do that is by building it on stable foundations. And so we built this not on the basis that gold was going to go to $5,000, because if it does, fantastic. But we built it on the basis that commodity prices would would be within X percent up or down of where they are. And, um, you know, if we're resilient enough to, to weather that, you know, if it goes up, fantastic. That's a great position to be in. But also, what's the downside risk? And if we can answer the question on the downside risk well, um, and we think we've, we've really covered the downside risks in Elemental Altus, then we can spend a lot of time talking to the upside. We can spend a lot of time talking to the assets in the portfolio. We can spend a lot of time talking to the fact that um, in a world where uh, a lot of the developed countries have been almost competing against each other to devalue their currencies faster, um, it is to remain competitive. A gold is actually a great investment to have. And we're taking this call both out of the UK. Um, and, and if you look at the pound, um, it's, it's sometimes interesting to look at gold 
in US dollar terms, but then look at it over a 10-year view in sterling terms. Um, or if you want a real extreme version of that, look at it in Argentinian um, or uh, Zimbabwean or Russian currencies. And, you know, gold has been not just a store of value um, and a safe haven, but gold has actually delivered a lot of value in those countries. And um, it, it's, I think, probably the way it's going to go um, as, as governments keep running deficits um, and, and keep spending more money. And is that, you know, it's difficult in a modern democracy um, to, I think, implement very harsh austerity nowadays. Um, and, it, and if you're not going to do that, you're acknowledging you're going to run a deficit. It's more of a question of how much of a deficit. And in those circumstances, commodities like gold should continue to perform very well. And at the same time, we, we now, our second biggest um, asset exposure we have is, is uh, copper. And, um, uh, you know, these big copper porphyries in Chile um, are the types of assets that have the potential to go for decades and decades, even at today's prices. And in 20 or 30 years' time, um, you know, we don't know where it will be, but it certainly gives us fantastic optionality. And it gives our shareholders optionality that is very hard to get otherwise, um, where we don't ever have to commit another dollar to that project. So the more optionality we can build into a really de-risked portfolio, um, the better place we'll be. And we haven't touched on it today, but I think um, at some stage in the next coming year or so, I think we will probably have the discussion internally around the dividend as well um, as a way to start giving investors something back um, and, and, you know, the reason we can do that is because we have a cool portfolio of producing royalties. And as we grow, we have a bigger margin, which gives us more cash to do it. So that's that's one aspect that I think um, we may we may look to, um, you know, start that conversation internally soon and um, and, and sort of progress it as, as, uh, as the months go by. 